Heterodorks. 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 Well, hello, turfs and trannies. You are listening to Heterodorks. My name is Corinna Cohn. I am one of your co-hosts. My name is Nina Paley. I'm your other co-host, the less polite and less nice co-host. And today we have a special guest, Colin Wright. Hey, thanks for having me. Would you like to introduce Bun Self, Colin? <laughs> Bun Wood. Uh, <laughs> so I'm a... Uh... An evolutionary biologist. I'm the senior editor at FAIR, uh, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, contributing editor at Quillette, and I run my own uh, newsletter called Reality's Last Stand, where I publish sort of weekly news about the whole sex and gender debate, I guess you could call it, or uh, the current cultural fascination with that stuff. I try to clarify uh, sex and gender from a biological perspective, um, and I publish not just a newsletter, but articles on there as well. And I've been talking about this stuff for probably a little over three years now, uh, leaving academia to talk about this, not exclusively, but it's a, it's a large part of what I do now. I just reread your Quillette article about your own cancellation story. I'd read it before, but I just wanted to read it again, and we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I'm glad that time is over. <laughs> it's Although, over? Yeah. Yours is over? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> shockingly, I don't get much harassment anymore. It was it was only really intense when there was something they could take from me when they thought I was well, when I was on the job market and I was a vulnerable postdoc looking for professor jobs. That's when they swarmed the hardest because they they knew they could probably, you know, tarnish my reputation enough and make me uh, not, you know, the the go to candidate. You know, at least it's a lot easier for them to place me in the other box of, you know, maybe maybe we'll pass on this one. Um, so yeah, so I, I, once I left academia, and started working for fair or sorry, for Quillette at first, which is, you know, free speech, uh, platform and now fair, which was major focus on free speech. They, they know they can't really cancel me. And so they basically have stopped trying, which is really kind of an interesting social dynamic there of when and where and who they decide to swarm around. I still get swarmed. I mean, I get, I guess you just moved, but I get canceled over and over in my own town. There are these waves of witch hunting in my own town and denunciations. Yeah. I do think women get it worse. I mean, I've co-authored an, like an article in the Wall Street Journal with Emma Hilton, and I was the first author on that. And it came out the same time, same paper. And the DMs that Emma got were just really like abusive and, and horrific. And I just got a few people saying great piece. So there could be a little sex difference and at least people that they assume will easily cave. Maybe they just assume women are going to be more likely to be like, Oh heavens. I'm sorry. But luckily a lot of people are not, not doing that. It's weird how they intuitively know that your co-author Emma is a woman. What mechanisms do you think contribute to that? <laughs> don't know how they could possibly know it's the biggest mystery it's a lucky guess <laughs> what do you think is the mindset of people who were trying to interfere with you at the time who were trying to interfere with you seeking a, and attaining a career in academia what were they thinking about i don't purport to be a mind reader so what they were at least saying that they were concerned about was that I was 
my article was creating an unsafe environment for trans and non-binary people that I was attacking and erasing or invalidating the identities of these individuals. Um, and so it was all, it was all couched in sort of safetyism. Like I'm a, I'm a danger, even though, you know, I studied social behavior and ants and stuff. I was spending all my time in the lab, just poking ants and watching what they're doing and taking notes. Um, and this portrayal that I'm sort of going to be waiting in the bushes, waiting to attack trans and non-binary people. It's just anyone who knows me would know how just absurd that is. And, uh, and anyone who reads the article, it's so clear that I wasn't directing any attacks or criticisms at, at people directly. It was just sort of the ideas there. Um, but they, they at least purport to be concerned about safety. You know, there could be a more ideological motive there. It could be just more of a political, they're trying to signal virtue to others. And look, we found a bad guy and I'm going to stand up and say how bad he is. And you know, they get sort of social brownie points for doing that. It's a really interesting dynamic. I mean, I studied social behavior for the last 12 years when I was doing grad school and postdoc. And I've, I feel like I've gained more of an education in social behavior just in the last three years, seeing what's been going on on Twitter, at least in terms of human social behavior than I have in all of my studies. <laughs> it's been, uh, it's been an, uh, quite the education. There was a time when I wanted to have models like animated models of how this type of behavior spreads through a society because certainly in my town it seemed like people it just seemed like a game like a like a witch hunt game like denounce the witch or you're going to be denounced as a witch so you have to do that but i just thought aren't there models of this like how social contagion spread through, I mean, I guess just a straight up social contagion is one thing, but this is more of a, a polarizing battle where there's a scapegoat and then there's people denouncing the scapegoat and like, are they protect, like, where are they located in this thing? Like, why, why do some people resist? Is it because they're safe? Like you said, you left academia, so you weren't as vulnerable. You weren't located in the same space as this cult. You were, you like moved out into a different space where you weren't surrounded by the, the black Othello pieces or whatever, you know, I just think of these pieces like flipping, right? Like they get surrounded and they just flip. Are you familiar with any models? Have you ever thought of modeling it? You know, I haven't modeled any of it myself or really gone into, you know, looking at the data behind it. Um, I know Nicholas Christakis, they're sort of an expert in social contagion and they've talked about, the way that I guess even the whole gender thing had been something that happened in the nineties as well. And not to the same extent that it is now, at least according to him, I haven't really uh, seen what he was talking about on that, but you know, things like cutting things like, you know, even uh, certain eating disorders. I mean, these things, there are people who've modeled the way these sort of things can spread through, you know, it wasn't always social media that sort of made it a lot easier, but it used to just be, you know, they'd see something on TV and it would sort of spread through word of mouth through schools and things like that. And there's also these dynamics, they they call it like the spiral of silence, which is, I think is also something that's uh, at play here, which is sort of this, this idea based on, you know, how many people around me know, uh, are in the know about this ideology, how many are free to say it. And there's sort of this relationship between how many people you assume might be of this one ideology that causes you to be silent on this issue. Uh, and then there's this like issue of false consensus. But the more and more people that are starting to speak up, it sort of creates this catalyzing effect where, okay, you, the more and more people around you that are speaking up makes it so 
you are more likely to speak up. But when you have like a chilling effect, what, what happens when someone gets canceled, like a high profile person, uh, that just sort of creates this cycle of silence where no one wants to be the one that stands up to get all the arrows, you know, hurled at them. And so they'd be quiet. And then now all of a sudden, no one is voicing your view. And so you think you're the only one who thinks about it. And so you're more likely to be silent. Um, and it just creates this, this feedback loop where everyone just sort of stops talking about certain things. Um, and I see a lot of what I'm trying to do is trying to, to break that, given that I've maybe achieved an uncancelable status where I'm just trying to like blow open the doors and, and make people more likely to say, oh, okay, there are other people who are thinking these same things. Uh, and I think we are, in a sense, seeing more people speaking about it and more people are now feeling you know, that they, they're not quite so siloed and alone. Uh, in their thoughts. I mean, I, I try to do that. I am the village turf and got to embrace it. I, yeah, I take my role seriously, but every time I, I do speak out, I'm still attacked again. Uh, I guess I do have a few more friends, like people support me privately, Yeah, but nobody supports me publicly. Have people tried to dox you or anything? Have they gotten personal to that, to that level? I don't have to be docs. These are former friends. This is in my town. I mean, they know me. We know each other. And these are people who I've always had perfectly fine relationships with. And they just go bananas. Yeah. And and they use this rhetoric of, you know, like the 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 non-binaries are in danger as long as I'm not using their pronouns. <laughs> I, mean, I, have, I, have, I have old colleagues that I used to co-author papers with who are convinced that I'm just like some Satan spawn now and they've publicly denounced me and they refuse to even have a conversation, even though we were at least with one of them at one point, we were, I would consider them perhaps my best friend at a time. And it's just, you know, they, the cognitive dissonance kind of gets in and, you know, they're still in academia. So they, I, I wonder if they could even say what they think they wanted to, you know, they're, they're not tenured yet. So I just, there's so many social dynamics, again, that whole spiral of silence thing. And I just, I just want to tap and be like, you can tell me if you're actually don't believe it. Like I won't out you, but come on. <laughs> like you, there's no way you can possibly believe this stuff. If you look at my blog, if you look at ninapaley.com, I just shared excerpts from an email exchange from my local bicycle club, which is about to die because genderism is colonizing the local bicycle club because there, there was a checkbox that was just this relic on the membership form that just asked for your sex, male or female. And somebody complained after years of this being on the form, she said that uh, that's not inclusive of non-binary and other identities. And so people in the club said, well, we don't need this checkbox. Let's just get rid of it. And that was not enough. Now what the club is being asked to do by some of the members is to consult with the local pride center for guidance on how to be inclusive. And as the village turf, I spoke up and I said, we've always been very welcoming to people of all faiths and we don't prioritize any one faith over any other faith. And so pressuring, you know, some believers pressuring the club to take guidance from this particular church is, you know, like I, we shouldn't do that because that's prioritizing one faith over other faiths. And let's just be welcoming to everybody and people can talk about their own faith among each other, but the club should not take a position on that. And it's an imposition to be asked your gender beliefs, just as it is an imposition to be asked your religious beliefs on the form. And 
boy, did that get some people angry. Yeah, I mean, I see the pattern. It's, it's not enough to merely, as you guys did, remove the sex question altogether. Maybe it was irrelevant to know the sex of somebody there. But just by removing it, you know, that might be inclusive, but it's not affirming. <laughs> and if you don't just go around validating everyone every second of every day, uh, that's not it's not good enough. So, yeah. Colin, your newsletter is called Reality's Last Stand. Yeah. But I saw also that because of the events of Leah Thomas winning the NCAA swimming event last week, that you think that we're at a pivot point potentially where reality has had its last stand and it looks like it's going to turn things around and come out ahead. Am I reading you correctly? Yeah, I mean, to some degree. I don't think we've quite reached the pivot point. I think in the next couple years, I mean, I've, I'm really bad at predictions, so this could be. I've been saying, like, oh, it can't get much worse every year, and it's gotten worse. <laughs> so, uh, but just judging by the way that people were reacting to the people who are protesting, the Save Women sports protesters, uh, just the everyday people who are attending the event, um, almost all of them, we're just giving thumbs ups, smiling, you know, taking the pom poms thing, uh, you know, males don't belong in female sport, all this type of stuff. Uh, very few people were looked angry or said any slurs at us or anything like that. So, I mean, if you were to just pull the, the crowd, I mean, all the people there know it's absurd. We'd even, people who didn't want to say something, you just look at them and say, you know what's wrong. And they kind of just like, you know, they might not make eye contact, but they kind of smile and they're like, they don't want to talk about it. but they know. And so I, I just think that a lot of the ideology, it's it's sort of on borrowed time right now. I mean, it's it's gotten so far because it has this sort of cultural momentum, uh, because people kind of associate it with the gay rights movement, and it's got a lot of funding in it. But people are becoming more and more aware that it's pretty hollow. Uh, and they know sort of where the, the moral... Um, what's moral and just, well, what side of the argument that, that lies on. So I think just, again, more and more people seeing things like Leah Thomas, that is, you know, the women's national champion. Uh, I think these things will kind of fast track the ideology's demise. Maybe not in total, maybe it could just be in sports. Um, but it does seem to me that we're reaching a point where at least there's enough pushback to maybe the next few years to start pushing the needle back the other way. I do think it's going to get possibly even considerably crazier before it gets better as sort of the animal gets backed into the corner. But uh, I do think that there is some reason for optimism. Do you think there's going to be a horrendous backlash that harms lesbians and gays and all sorts of non-conforming people as damage? Yeah. I've heard a lot of people say that, and I, I guess I'm concerned to some degree, but I really don't see it because even on in right wing circles, and I, I don't even consider myself there, but I, I talk to some of them now because they seem to be pretty level headed, at least on this issue. I, I just I really don't see a lot of the homophobia and even a hate of trans people or anything. I mean, the fringes, I mean, they're always going to be there, but I really don't see that being a major issue. I, I think once things hopefully start reflecting reality more. Um, and there, there might be some skepticism towards some of these organizations like the ACLU and the Human Rights Campaign that, you know, they're maybe not always right on everything. Um, I, I don't see there being a, a huge backlash. Um, 
but I mean, it's something to look out for. And I, I do worry. I see some of some rhetoric that people use does seem a little extreme. Um, and so, so yeah, it's something to look out for. But I, I'm not too concerned with like this enormous backlash because I think most people's morals are actually in the right place. I think most people are pretty accepting. Um, they just don't want to have to agree with some ideology that makes them deny reality. Are you gender critical, Colin? Um, I suppose. I mean, a lot of people would probably put me in that in that bucket. I'm highly critical of gender ideology. So if that makes me gender critical, then yeah, um, I guess that would that label fits. Um, I tend to to shy away from just adopting labels, just because they're kind of loaded terms. There's a lot of baggage, and someone you know, I might what I refer to as gender critical by someone who's a trans rights activist or something, when they hear it, they might have this whole other idea that I hate trans people or something. And so I'd rather just not put labels all over myself and just say like, well, here's what I think about this issue and, and here's why, um, and just kind of leave the labels on the side. And I do that with everything. I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't believe in God, but I don't really refer to myself as an atheist, even though, you know, in some circles I'd be like, yeah, it applies to me. Um, I usually just say like, I don't believe in God and you can ask me questions why, because some people who are, you know, evangelicals, they might think, oh, you're atheist, you're, you know, you're, you're an evil person. You don't think morality exists or anything like that. And that's just, that's just not true. It's, hmm. um, I just tend to, let's just talk about ideas and, and leave the labels at the door and just concentrate on the underlying concepts that we're all trying to talk about and find out what's true. Well, it sounds to me like you're afraid of commitment. <laughs> that is a label i, I suppose <laughs> commitment phobe exactly commitment phobe i'm a lot of phobes apparently I've, I've been very bad at the transphobia people have been lauding me as a transphobe for years for saying things like women don't have penises and yet i am terrible at it I just terrible at being a transphobe. Yeah, I'm yeah. terrible at hating trans people. I'm just an utter failure. Yeah, I mean, people, <laughs> I get, I get, of course, that label a lot. I get called a turf all the time. It used to bother me when I was in academia when I was worried that my career was going to be completely over. But it's just like water on a duck's back now. I just don't even. It's just like what else? I, I get called this every day. It doesn't matter anymore. Whatever. I mean, that's not the case for everyone. I'm sure a lot of people, uh, depending on their profession and where they are, it can be pretty, pretty damaging. But uh, it feels to me as though the term transphobic has really been bleached of most of its practical meaning. So whereas in my life, I have faced instances where I actually have been a target of bigotry, where I've not been provided medical services and where I've likely been passed over for work on on the basis of my status of being trans. I would call that transphobic. But yeah, absolutely. I've I've also heard people say something very trivial like Nina's recognition of me as being male and they're therefore using pronouns that are sex based as being transphobic. But Nina has never denied me any job, except that I did try to mow her lawn. And uh, she did induce me to do it and then didn't pay me for it because I left a, a strip of 
unmowed grass. <laughs> and there also when I raked up her leaves and she also didn't pay me for that. Or when I carried in her groceries and she didn't pay me for that. Getting but, called out on air. Yeah. Wow. Aside from those cases where I've been, I guess that's not being denied employment, just pay. Uh, she hasn't been otherwise. <laughs> Happy to employ you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, otherwise has not been transphobic, but the abuse of the word transphobic, it just means that now when people are actually expressing outright hatred and saying, yes, I really do hate trans people and I don't mind being called a bigot, the they are literally transphobic and they're proud of it in an unironic way. But to draw attention to the, uh, people who are expressing the sorts of beliefs doesn't do any good now because the term transphobic has been bled of all of its meaning. Yeah. I mean, now, as you mentioned, it refers to people who just would say something like there are only two sexes or right. male and female are not social constructs. I've been called, I've been told that was vile transphobia for suggesting that that is the, the case. Um, and it's not even just on trans issues. I mean, I think, I feel like all of the labels, the the bad labels that you call people just in the last, I don't know, five years or so, they've all been bled of their meaning. Like I'm, I'm called a white supremacist because I was critical that Castor Semenya, the, the intersex athlete should compete with um, the female category. And I was apparently um, putting white supremacist views of what, masculinity is on black women and black women oh don't you know of the history of of you know over masculinizing black women and if they were white i wouldn't have an issue and it's just like if you're going to call me a white supremacist like i'm sorry the word has <laughs> literally no meaning left in it um same with transphobia i mean i feel like all of these words um they've been blood of their meaning which, as you as you point out, it, it, you can't call out when it really shows up. It's sort of like you know the um, boy who cried wolf or the the sky is falling. What's that little? Can't remember what that is. The, Chicken little. Chicken little. Yeah. I mean, there's just at some point people are just gonna stop caring, and when when the real phobia comes in, which I think a lot of the new modern gender ideology, I do feel like it is quite homophobic in many ways, and I try to to call that out. They just, they just don't see it. They don't see the actual sexism that I see involved in the, the new uh, gender ideology. And to me, this it's just rampant. I just, I just see the homophobia and sexism there. And it just gets a pass because, you know, it couldn't possibly be that because they're the, they're the people who are on the side of everything good and, and moral in the world. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really big problem. We don't have the tools, the words to even describe these horrible these horrible things that people do. Well, I, as a turf, I occupy turfy corners with a lot of traumatized women who have been banned from Twitter and banned from various other platforms. And they really are traumatized. And perhaps because of that, or for other reasons, there is developing in the gender critical world uh, our own extreme factions who are starting to sound remarkably similar to the extreme factions on the trans activist side. They are not equal. Uh, the, the extreme, I don't even know what to call them. I don't know if to call them extreme gender critical or I think maybe I will say extreme gender critical actually. Yeah. 
because it, it includes men. You probably saw the video of the man screaming at the trans-identified man at the Lesbian Gay Alliance conference. Did you see that? It's mm-hmm. circulating on Twitter. I missed that, actually. Okay, yeah. Uh, and it does not enhance the reputation of gender-critical people at all. It, it It's like flushing our moral high ground down the toilet and it's not isolated this sort of rhetoric is popular online there's some very again traumatized people who are saying things that they never said like 4 years ago when i you know entered the the turf world and it's I, i'm not really sure well i guess i am sure what to do about it which is to start to distance myself but I never thought I would be in this place. I never yeah. thought that we just had, we had the high ground for so long, you know, like, like turfdom was this very sensible, it was where the funny people were and the smart people and, and the good people. And now people are losing their sense of humor at the extremes. What, what are you, what are you seeing as uh, common examples of extreme gender critical uh like genuine hate expressed to trans people like dehu- the li- literally dehumanizing trans people i get flack for being friends with corinna uh i have been told or people are saying that corinna is an autogynophilic pervert who has groomed me i mean how can that be like corinna mows my lawn and i don't even pay him <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually have a lawn, but that's a nice story. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe Corinna is such a mastermind, but I know Corinna pretty well. And I really think that this characterization of him is incorrect. And 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 they've just decided that anyone who's trans... And, and by the way, when I say who is trans, you know, I don't think people are born trans... I don't believe in true trans. I say it sort of the same way I would say anybody who is part of some religious organization or cult or something, but they're still humans. It's like, they're still people. And uh, autogynephilia, which is a complicated subject, you know, it it is true that autogynephilia is frequently comorbid with personality disorders that are quite rancid, but it is not itself a personality disorder. It's a, it's a fetish and it's a burden to the men that suffer it. But there's this rhetoric now that all trannies are autogynephilic perverts who are getting off on violating women's boundaries. Yeah. I, I, I do see some people saying that even acknowledging transgenderism is itself you know we shouldn't even be doing that like trans doesn't exist and i mean maybe in the way they're defining it is you know yeah it's true that no one is actually literally born in the wrong body but then to say you know i i do think it is a real phenomenon of people who have this condition where they have gender dysphoria and they feel they certainly feel that they have or they at least have this extreme discomfort in their sex bodies and um they they feel that's distress ameliorated when they go through transition 
Um, you know, to, to me, it's all about, you know, whether or not this should be something we do to kids, but adults who want to do this, they can, uh, they're free to, to do this if they would like to, if it makes them feel better. Um, and to me, that's like what like true, true trans is, is those, those people who will eventually feel comfortable transitioning and, and taking those steps to do it. It's, but, you know, we can say that there's a lot of, of people that are caught up with an ideology now and not necessarily fit in that true trans bucket. Um, but I do see it as kind of an extreme trying to even say that like gender dysphoria is not even a real thing or something. To me, that's a little, not just a little, it's, it's quite extreme <laughs> in my view. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, it's, it doesn't really even matter if people are actually suffering, you know, gender dysphoria. For me, the issue is that there are so many people that identify as trans. You have to, you have to use a word for these people. Yeah. And and they are still human beings. Uh, there, there are some really vile. Allegedly, ones. yeah, allegedly. Corinna, you know, we're still the judgments. What is? How do you say? It? Jury's still out. Yeah, jury's still out. Whether Corinna's human. <laughs> we'll assume it for the remainder of the show. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It's like there, there are like horribly vile perverts representing trans activists or or trans activism. You know, like I, it's full of perverts. Yeah. It is, <laughs> but that does not mean that you know all trans people are are perverts. Well, that's like that's like a tactic. I mean, they call it like nut picking. You can take any movement and you can find some literally completely bonkers, insane person saying the things that you know you're saying, plus a whole bunch of other things that are properly nuts. And you can just you know say like, hey, this is what this group believes uh you can do it with the atheists you can do it with the christians you can do it with trans people you can do it with you can do it with anybody um and it's it's easy to find you know like libs of tiktok that's kind of what they do even though i see these people they're not that rare <laughs> i know i know a lot of them uh personally that that were like that but yeah it's just, it's not everyone who's in that in that community is the libs of TikTok type people who are out there trying to indoctrinate your kids and tell them about sex changes and all that stuff. But they are very, very loud. Like the loudest people it's, tend it's to be thing. lunatics. Yeah. There are, for some reason, all the social incentives are giving them platforms and encouraging that type of behavior where they're not, they're not really embarrassed <laughs> to, to say these absurd things. Uh, whereas people like, you know, me and others who are just trying to say that sex is real, for some reason, these are the people who are who are reluctant to to say very basic things. It's a kind of a weird inversion. Colin, I, I'm sorry, I don't want to draw attention to you personally, but I, I got to tell you something that I'm observing. You're, you are ex extremely calm and mild mannered and thoughtful and your personality on on social media is a little bit different from that. Not, I, I get yeah. You're you're not necessarily causing flame wars on social media, but you seem to have a, a, a very definitive persona. I mean, I try to just state things as frankly as possible. That could just be because Twitter gives you a very limited space to do things, so I try to pack as much informational content that it could come across as robotic or, or I don't know, just someone who's 
kind of pompous or something, although I, I try to to not come across that way. But yeah, I've, a lot of people tell me that, oh, they thought I'd be more of an asshole, <laughs> but I'm not. So yeah, maybe it's the image too. It's sort of like a, I had a bunch of images taken, photos. So it's just sort of like this, I don't know, it's a, it's a highly produced photo from a photo shoot. So maybe that, maybe that makes people think I'm more of an ass. And people always say they think I'm British too. Like they read my quotes, my, my tweets in a British accent and everyone knows British people are all assholes. So um, maybe that's part of it. Except our friends of the podcast who are British. You guys are not assholes. <laughs> Except the listeners. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of it too is, I mean, this is what people like Richard Dawkins, a Brit, you know, he, when he was criticizing things, criticizing religion, I mean, he never said anything in actual inflammatory ways. He just said, frankly, what he thought. And, you know, when certain cherished beliefs are are criticized, beliefs that people have put sort of a, a shield around that are there, you know, these these shouldn't be questioned. It is, it's just going to sound strident or something to some people. Um, so I think I get some of that, but. Um, I wouldn't say that either of you have or have these cherished beliefs that I'm, I'm prodding at. So it's interesting to spare. I'm, I'm more and more conscious of that. I don't know how I can solve it, but yes, it is what it is. Right, more and more conscious of what? My just the way I the disparity between my my Twitter persona and how I am, I guess, on podcasts or in real life. It's like you're the nice James Lindsay. <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, James definitely went through a, a transition period where he was he was very much I think he would tweet like like I do now, um, and then he he definitely went hard. And uh, yeah, I mean I'm I'm friends with James, but I definitely wouldn't tweet like him. And I, I debate whether his his methods are are more destructive <laughs> as they are. Uh, beneficial. I mean, I'm sure he gets a lot of converts, but I think I've heard from a lot of people that they they become solidified in the opposite direction because of uh, his Twitter. But then when you get James on a podcast, I mean, he's great. He's completely personable and he's willing to talk about all the issues down to the fundamentals and he's extraordinarily intelligent. Um, yeah, I think Twitter persona matters. I, I try to be as as cordial as I can and not attack people, but just attack their ideas by attack and just frankly state why I think it's wrong. And yeah, it's kind of, that's, that's my, it's my method. Do you think that there's a possibility that social media might be inflicting damage in our own personality development? Possibly. I mean, I don't know if maybe when you get to a certain age, if you come to it, like I only got on Twitter in 2018, I was in my thirties. But I, I I do wonder about you know when you have children who are on things like Instagram and TikTok and you know the whole chasing all the likes and the uh, little you know mental associations you get when you just get like this um, you know, serotonin burst or something when you just get a like and I've sort of seen people be really obsessed with that some young kids like oh you didn't like this thing I was like no I I liked your post like no you didn't physically like click the like button. I, I, yeah, I think that's could be an issue. I mean, this is like Jonathan Haidt's work and Greg Lukianoff, and they talk about, you know, screen time and how these apps can be really be affecting people's mental well health, especially children. I think there's probably a lot to look at there. 
I like to think maybe I've came to social media later where it's not affecting me that much. But I mean, I see some people who are my age who get seemingly demented by social media. Maybe that's a strong word. Someone like Helen Pluckrose, like she's one of the most rational people in the world, in my opinion. Um, but she cannot handle social media. She can't just let someone be wrong on the internet and people know it and they troll her and it it drives her nuts, like completely nuts. Um, and we just tell her that's what the block button is for and you know, she won't she won't do that. And I think she's just gone off Twitter. I think her account's just erased now because she deactivated it for over a month. So yeah, it, it can, I think it can harm adults too. Hopefully I don't go crazy. If I do, send me a DM and I'll hopefully respond not with too much venom. Yeah, yeah, you'll block me and say, how dare you? I had a few people. One of them was Helen. I always told her, like, if, if I ever start saying crazy things, send me a DM because I'll use that as like my touchstone that I'm getting a little getting a little crazy. But now she's not on Twitter, so I could just be floating off in absurdity and I wouldn't even know it. Well, it's the human dilemma. We We need external feedback for our sanity. But what social media does is it gives us insane external feedback. I did a, a poll on my Twitter a year ago. I need to do it again because I was I wanted to know what the political leanings of everyone on my Twitter was. So I locked my Twitter account down for a day and did a poll just so it's only people who follow me can respond. And I just asked, you know, what are your political leanings? And my, my choices were I think like right, lean right, lean left, left. And it was actually the the most beautiful bell curve. I think like forty seven were percent were like left lean left and 53% were right lean right. So I feel like I have a pretty good balance of my followers. Uh, I need to do it again this year. Hopefully, we'll see if it's shifted at all. But uh, that's kind of what I'm shooting for. Like I'm not trying to be political. I'm I rarely tweet anything political whatsoever. Like I'm just trying to talk about what biology is, why it matters, you know, sex-based rights, these types of things. And I think a lot of people on both sides sort of understand that. So Hopefully that keeps me from being in a box, but maybe maybe centrism, maybe that's its own bubble. I don't even, I guess it could be. That's where I'm heading. Radical, yeah. moderate. Radical moderation. <laughs> it's better than the other extremes, I think. Yeah, radical extremism, I guess. For the benefit of our 30 listeners, whom, some of whom may have not heard of the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Can you describe what that is a little bit and what you're doing with them? Yeah, so Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, or FAIR, uh, they're a group that is uh, trying to create a common culture of fairness, understanding, and humanity, I guess is the way they like to sort of elevate or pitch. They're against a lot of the identitarianism that you see, mainly on issues of, of race. You know, they any types of, uh, we see a lot of these new DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion policies. They claim to be like, oh, we're just super inclusive. The language all sounds nice. Um, but at the end of the day, there's usually some sort of racial quota going on. Everything's, all the outcomes need to reflect society perfectly, which does result in sort of a devaluing of meritocracy um, over just sort of this artificial representation of people by skin color. We see a lot of policies, there was some policies in New York where they were giving, you know, life-saving COVID treatments, and they considered being Black as an inherent risk factor. 
to having COVID, even though, you know, they're not controlling for variables like, you know, obesity rates or whatever like that. And so people who, who are maybe even more likely to die from COVID as an individual, if you were just to assess them as an individual level, you know, if they check the box that like one well, white Caucasian, like they wouldn't be fast tracked to this medication. But if you check the box that you're black, you would. So, you know, FAIR did a big lawsuit. It's, they're still undergoing with, uh, with uh, New York City, maybe even the state. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we create a lot of curriculum that is sort of promoting this pro-human approach, which is, you know, every individual is, uh, you know, a, a unique individual and they should be treated based on their merit, not on these immutable characteristics like uh, like the color of their skin. So that's, that's what we try to do. We we have alternative, I don't, I don't know if I want to call it alternative diversity training, but I guess it is now because the most prevalent ones are sort of the more woke sort of DEI approaches. So uh, we're offering sort of an alternative to that that's really just based in what I would say is the, the ideas just in the original Civil Rights Act that we shouldn't be using uh, race as, as a proxy for, for, for really anything. I'm there. I manage their Substack and their newsletter. Mm. So I'm, I, we have a lot of articles that we're publishing to that sort of reflect the, the pro-human message. Uh, and so that's, that's what I spend most of my day doing is editing those pieces and uh, preparing them for, for publication. So I've been saying that genderism is a religion or more broadly, what we call wokeism is a religion. What do you think of that when people like me say that? I, I completely understand <laughs> where you're coming from. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it could, yeah, there's a lot of religious aspects to it, sort of a faith-based type thing of, of um, I guess, these moral communities that are, that are formed. You know, there is maybe, you could probably find some, like, religious anthropologists be like, well, it can't be a religion because it doesn't check this box or this box. But there's definitely quite a lot of overlap that, like, you know, it definitely smells very similar. Uh, and I, I, I had started doing, you know, speaking up a lot of what I was first writing about before I was writing about sex and gender. Well, I had a big gap when I was in grad school, so I was just writing about my research. But before that, I had a blog and I was really involved in like the atheist community and arguing against young earth creationism and intelligent design and things like that. So I had a lot of interactions with sort of creationists and it's the reasoning they would give for their their ideas and i really do see very similar ways that they're structuring their arguments with a lot of the sort of woke people and i do think that my involvement in like the skeptic community and atheist community has helped identify <laughs> like i've seen this before but it's also weird because the atheist community is possibly the wokest of them all now which i'm having a hard time comprehending because a lot of the people who I admire in those groups, they've all blocked me on Twitter. I'm this because I said they misquoted JK Rowling and apparently that was off limits. And Richard Dawkins has been cast into the void by uh, the atheist movement, even though he, he was responsible for even putting atheism on the map again in the, the last century. So it's completely weird. I, I do. I understand when people say it's religion and I, I would I'd probably agree that it is very, at least religion like, enough to be called possibly the same thing in many ways. Do you think that people have a religious instinct or a religious need and that maybe the reason that all these atheists have gone crazy woke is that they've renounced religion, and, but they still have the instinct for it? I do. I, I would, if you asked me that like 10 years ago, I probably would have been like, that's insane. 
Um, there's, I'll bring up, I keep, I brought up Richard Dawkins several times now. I usually don't bring up this much, but it seems relevant. There's a lot of times where Dawkins was asked that question, you know, like, do people have this need for religion? Um, they would ask him, say, like, you know, if you take religion away, what would you replace it with? And his his sort of canned response was always something like, well, when you remove a tumor, when, what do you replace the tumor with? You know, and so he just saw it as just an all bad thing all the time. Um, and I was very much of that same opinion. I think there are some people who don't need to have these major moral communities who can sort of exist outside of that framework. Dawkins is probably one of those people, Sam Harris, you know, he is fine. He can just meditate and he's, he's good to go. Um, I do think probably at a population level, a lot of people kind of do need these, these sort of meaning making narratives in their lives to help to give them meaning to, to wake up and go out and do things. So I see the stats that show that religion has been falling over time. And I used to celebrate that fact, be like, oh, religion, all time low. And then I just wonder, like, well, I would like to see that that graph with and also the graph of how many pronouns are now appearing in bios. Because <laughs> I think that that, in a way, is sort of taking a place of like the little, little cross someone might wear on their, on their blouse or something. Um, and I do see it as very much maybe not an official religion, religion that has like a deity, but I think it's filling that same role. And so I do think that a lot of the atheist movement was misguided in the sense that they do need to offer some sort of alternative, a secular alternative that is going to create meaning in a certain way. And I think a lot of the woke people are getting their meaning from, from this ideology and we're on the right side of history and um, all that stuff. Yeah. So that's been a big change in, in my view, I guess, in the last decade of, of religion. I'm still not religious. I still think that dogma is probably overall a bad thing, you know, ideas that can't be questioned. And I think dogma is probably why a lot of religion is bad, but dogma is bad, even if it's in a secular uh, sense. And I think we, with a lot of woke stuff, there is definitely a dogma involved there. So I would, I would say that dogma is bad, but maybe some religious meaning making is good. The big question is whether those can be completely separated and teased out and and taken sort of a la carte. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. So I'm familiar with a, an ideology that has some parallels in, in, in my mind to genderism or wokeism. And it presumes that there is a force in society that is called patriarchy and that the outcomes of men and women are different on the basis, more on the basis of this force of patriarchy than because of any sort of innate or natural basis. And I guess as a biologist, I'm wondering if you feel that maybe there might be some similar religious structures to feminism or what you think feminism might not process correctly about human biology? I look at the the accusations of patriarchy as being sort of this in the air, you know, it's everywhere, it's sort of like an ether. I kind of I kind of look at that the same way I look at when people talk about systemic racism. Um, it's just sort of this force that's invisible. Um, that's not to say that racism doesn't exist, and it's not to say that sexism doesn't exist. They, they both absolutely do. 
and they're important and they're to varying degrees of prevalence that changes over time. Uh, but I would just say that these instances need to be pointed out on an individual basis just to, to cloak everything um, in this entire lens. Like if, if, there's, if we're just living and breathing in a patriarchy, then every interaction between men and women is going to be viewed as some weird power dynamic and, oh, they didn't, she didn't get the job, like that's patriarchy. You know, it's always this like post hoc analysis where there maybe had been an outcome that wasn't completely equal. And this is just, you know, this fits really nicely into this worldview that says this is, this is due to patriarchy. Same thing with um, a lot of the, the sort of racial things with systemic racism. You know, they're just measuring outcomes at the very end. And, you know, it's not completely equal. Why aren't we don't see black people in STEM as high as white people? You know, there's plenty of other reasons, maybe cultural factors that are at play. Doesn't necessarily mean they're being discriminated against. And anyway, the ways to solve these things would be sort of more blind review processes, all these types of things to reduce the the signals that we can get from people, whether or not their sex or their race. Like that'd be the way I handle things. The feminist movement, I think... They did sort of overshoot their target in the past by focusing a lot more on the social aspects of things, which I think is a real thing to to care about. I tend to think, so the definition of gender that I've always thought made the most sense was sort of the social construct of the way that societies sort of enforce norms and roles on individuals based on their perceived sex. Like that seems like it's an important thing. And I've seen it in my life, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, the kid who the, the effeminate kid who was a boy, they were bullied because they weren't maximally masculine. And I know that some girls growing up when they were, they were more masculine, they were bullied by, you know, the, the more feminine stereotypically pretty girls or whatever. So there is like these social forces at play big time and they need to be called out, but they kind of, a lot of the feminist movement overshot that into saying that like all behaviors of men and women, it's all the result of, of social socialization. You know, we are just complete blank slates. And it's if you can show the you know, well, kids, you know, even babies are have these sex differences. Like, well, they're they're hearing, they're getting socialized in the womb. Like, they just they assume socialization is there as like the null hypothesis. Whereas if you just take a step back and look at the animal kingdom as a whole you'd realize no there's we see these sex differences across the animal kingdom it's more explicit in mammals and then if you just look at the ways that humans behave we behave in exactly the same way you would expect based on all the mammalian trends like this idea that we have somehow lost all these innate behaviors and then just recapitulated them purely in a social in a social sense that just seems wildly improbable to me and i think a lot of the, what we're seeing now with the gender stuff and the overt sex denialism, this is just like another extension of sort of blank slateism, but it's like blank morphology, morphism now. It's, we've, we've gone even more extreme with the denying of, of biological reality. I just want to say that when you say feminism, it could mean any number of things. Yeah, this, this problem with labels too, yeah. Um, by, by some definitions... I'm a feminist. You know, if you define feminism by someone who thinks that men and women should receive equal treatment under the law, you know, that's yeah, I'm a feminist in that sense. Um, but you know, there's it's a it's a it's a loaded term. So yeah, I, I want to say a, that a, a branch of feminism was saying these things, but I don't want to paint the whole movement as yeah. 
one thing. I mean, so the, the RF in turf is supposed to be for radical feminist yeah. and radical feminists are very materialist, or at least they're supposed to be. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they tend to be better on that. Like they, they recognize at least the biological differences um, as being the object of historic oppression for women, uh, you know, not based on identity. You know, you didn't get people saying you can't vote because you identified as a woman. <laughs> it was, you couldn't vote because you were biologically female. Um, you can't just show up and be like, identify as a man today and then vote. Um, yeah. So yeah, they tend to be pretty tuned into the biological realities more. They do, there is a lot of social construction for personalities and all that stuff going on, um, which I, I tend to try to push back a little bit on with them. Yeah, but I agree. It's kind of, well, I mean, there's all kinds of, the whole world calls themselves feminists now, but even among people that call themselves radical feminists, I should say women, because I think that's something that, well, now there are people that aren't women that consider themselves radical feminists. It's words, right? Yeah. They're, they're not they can lose meaning. Yeah. That's why, I mean, I try to, I, I use labels just now, but I, I, I really try to avoid those labels, but sometimes it's hard to, to avoid yeah. using them completely. But anyway, they seem, you know, the circles that I travel in, they yeah. seem extremely, you know, sex differences are very, very important. Uh, but also there is a subset that still argues that, Behavioral differences are all socialization, which it's yeah, a small subset. Really it's a small subset, but if you think that, like, you know, one sex can actually get pregnant and, you know, doesn't have the same body strength, particularly upper body strength, as the other sex class, that that's just going to lead to some differences. Yeah. I mean, just everyone just goes to extremes on everything. You know, it's just like, is it nature or nurture? Well, it's like, well, it's definitely both like it's um, by me saying that there are sex differences in behavior i'm not saying that all women behave this way and all men behave this way it's just like there's just you know it's it's a tendency it's a a biological sort of push in a certain direction that makes you statistically more likely to behave a certain way um but and and it's not genetic determinism by any sense socialization matters quite a lot especially we're such a social species so yeah it's probably going to matter more for us than some other solitary species or something. So um, it's just about to what degree and being willing to actually debate about which points are more likely to be genetically influenced and which ones are not. It's just going to be case by case situation. Do you think that there might be a predisposition genetically for somebody to become trans identified? I think, I think that's probably absolutely true. I mean, I think that there are people that have, I mean, I, th I think it's, it's a physiological thing. It's, it's in people's brains to some degree, whether or not they have uh, gender dysphoria, just, uh, I mean, like, like any other mental trait, I think there could be some heritable component to it. Um, you see a lot of people posting like the, the brain scan studies or something is like, this is proof you can be born in the wrong body. You know, it's cause you know, the brains of trans people tend to be more intermediate or look more similar to the opposite sex or something. This is, I mean, it doesn't matter what, how feminized or, ma uh, or masculinized the, the brains of individuals tend to be. Like if you're a male, you have a male brain by definition. No one's saying that all male brains need to look this way. It's just that there's overlapping distributions of how masculinized or feminized people's brains are. Uh, you know, if some women have 
hands that are more masculinized and we wouldn't say that you were born with the wrong hands or anything like that. And brains are just as much pushed around by hormones during development as any other part of your body. So, you know, just because it looks a certain way, I mean, some, some men have faces that look more feminine. Some women might have a, you know, a, a facial recognition thing, mistake them for, for a male, you know, it's just, that's just a variation within the human population. It doesn't have anything to do with what sex you are or if you're born in the wrong body. All right. So what sort of projects are you working on right now? What should people check out in terms of your, your books or your work or your, your newsletter? Yeah, I'm focusing a lot more on my newsletter right now. Uh, so I, I'm no longer with Quillette as like a managing editor over there because I wanted to focus more on my newsletter, uh, sort of reporting on things. I have a lot of parents that are sending me stuff from their schools about, you know, this is gender ideology in my kid's school. Don't say my name, but you please report on this. So I'm going to be trying to sort of break more of the, these types of stories just to kind of expose this because you still get a lot of people saying that this is not really a problem. It doesn't exist in schools, um, or at least there's a lack of good data and reporting on it. So I'll be doing a lot more of that in the weekly newsletters as well. Um, still need to be, I'm, I'm starting to write a book on all this stuff. Uh, what sex is, gender ideology, all that, just sort of a capitulation of all the stuff I've been writing on for the last couple of years. Um, so just need to find time to really get that, get that out. Um, but other than that, I'm working full time with FAIR. So people should definitely check that out at fairforall.org. Um, check out realitieslaststand.com for my newsletter and articles. And follow me on Twitter at swiperight, W-R-I-G-H-T. That's what I got going. All right. I think we're done. Thank you so much for having me on. This is a lot of fun. If you ever want me back on, just let me know. Happy to do it. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure we'll be taking you up on that. Thanks for joining cool. us. <laughs> no problem. Thanks, Nina. So long, turfs and trannies. Bye, turfs and trannies. Later, turfs and trannies. Hey everybody. Thank you for listening to Heterodorks. You can support our podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash heterodorks or by directly supporting Nina Paley on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nina Paley.